Hello and welcome back to Heights Library's podcast, Unpacking 1619, where you can explore the interviews we've collected with scholars from around the country, in which we unpack topics relating to race in America. I'm your host, John Pichet, and I'm thrilled to share these interviews with you here. Alison Skinner Dorkinu, Department of Psychology, University of Georgia, discusses her article, How Microaggressions Reinforce and Perpetuate Systemic Racism in the United States. She defines what microaggressions are and how they support white supremacy. Through subtle and slight processes, microaggressions protect and reinforce othering of people of color. With environmental exclusions, treating people of color as second class, and promoting ideas of inequality. Here's our discussion from October 27th, 2022. I'm Allison Skinner Dorkanu. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Georgia. Well, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're talking today about how micro, an article you wrote called How Microaggressions Reinforce and Perpetuate Systemic Racism in the United States. And maybe you could kind of give us an overview of what the article is about and what it hopes to accomplish. Sure. So um, I think to summarize sort of my motivation with this paper was um, there has been certainly lots of sort of debate about what microaggressions are and, uh, you know, if they're real, um, if people are sort of being oversensitive and not to minimize any of, of that sort of whatsoever, but another um, sort of piece to add to that puzzle was thinking about even if there isn't someone to be offended um, or have their you know feelings hurt or or be upset by a microaggression that I sort of we can also think about the ways that it's impacting um, society as a whole and the way even if there isn't a member of a marginalized group who's going to um, you know have a negative reaction to something it's impacting the rest of people within society to be exposed to these messages and what i argue is that it's reinforcing systemic biases and racism by sort of normalizing these messages of um, sort of at a big picture level, uh, saying that sort of white people are different from people of color and that also um, many of these messages reinforce a notion that white people are in some ways superior to people of color and that um, even if there's not a person to feel offended by that message, that's reinforcing the is within our own minds and within our systems within society. Yeah, and I, I think that, really, that comes across really well in the, in the paper. And um, I think maybe we should start with kind of a general um, definition of what a microaggression is. And um, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about how it plays into the, the systemic racism you were talking about. Sure. Um, so I think a definition that is often used is something along the lines of everyday um, slights that people experience. So um, may or may not be intentional by the person or the institution that is um, sort of enacting the microaggression, but it's it's a sort of everyday slight that communicates. So as I mentioned, like this really originated out of people who, you know, were feeling slighted by these things, um, sort of that they were 
expressing, feeling these everyday slights of getting these messages of like, you don't quite belong. You're not, you're not quite measuring up. So it's like these small ways in which that's communicated by um, the way our systems are set up, by the things that we say, by our, by our expectations about, um, you know, different people, how they will speak and think and behave. And yeah. I think you said something, a second part of your question yeah, that I've I now forgotten. You, um, you know, it's, I want to get to back to something you said in a minute, but the kind of how these microaggressions contribute to uh, white superiority or uh, systemic racism as a, as, as a system, I guess. Um, sure. So I think we really break it down in like looking at it in a whole bunch of different ways and talking about all these different microaggressions and how we can still see that reinforcing the same message. Um, I think at a, at a big picture level, and we can also talk about specific examples, um, we think about the ways in which microaggressions um, just sort of communicate difference. And so that could be things like how, um, you know, people often want to ask people what race they are. Um, and typically this is not a question that is asked of, of people who look very clearly white. Um, so this is a question that gets asked of people that maybe have some sort of ambiguous characteristics um, that, and the idea is like, I want to put you in a in a racial box and think about how to think about you. Um, and also it's sort of cueing that like I'm no I'm othering you. I'm thinking of you of some like you're not you're not on and I need to know how to think about you. Um, and so the fact that that is a question that's not equally asked of everybody suggests that this is sort of an othering thing. So we can think about children on a playground, um, you know, a child starts school and they're surrounded by peers. And if they just looked around and looked at who are the people that get asked, what are you? Um, that certain people get asked that and certain people don't get asked that. So it's this sort of othering notion of who are the types of people that we don't have to ask that question for? Who are the types of people that we do have to ask that question for? Um, and so, and that's just an example of one of these sort of subtle ways that we just are sort of creating this division of like white and then everyone else. Um, and then the, also we can think about lots of ways in which there's this sort of superiority superiority notion so things like having assumptions about about intelligence and maybe um even saying something complimentary of of complimenting a um black student on being really well spoken so that's that's positive that's a compliment but also what is that implying that's implying that I had very low expectations of you. I didn't think you would be able to do this. And based on based on your group membership, based on your race. And so there are these subtle ways that sometimes can even seem positive, but are communicating that there's differences between white people and people of color. And also that I have positive associations and expectations with uh, white people and less so maybe with uh, people in other groups. Yeah, and I think that's uh, such an important point is that the, the white person, the white is kind of um, prioritized or seen as the norm, correct? And right. everything else is kind of needs to be explained. Right. 
So the other thing that, um, you know, I kind of wanted to get back to this idea that, you know, it's a slight or it's a minor infraction. And we kind of are able to, in some regard, dismiss them because they're these smaller micro, micro action. Mm -hmm. And isn't that part of the fact that they're based mainly in language, correct? Like the, the language we use kind of unconsciously is the problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're not just based in language, but I think we can also think about them still being really subtle. So for example, like um, environmental microaggressions, we could think about, so I know that I've walked into a number of different um, academic spaces and there'll be like pictures all on the wall of all of the very important historical people. And maybe I won't see a single woman there. And so like every single person there is a man and there's this cue there of like, who who are the people that we venerate? Who are the people that are important? Who belongs in this space? And we can most certainly think about that with um, many people of color experiencing that same thing of not seeing anyone from their uh, racial and ethnic group and also potentially gender for women. Um, and then there's the intersectional categories as well, but sort of thinking about, but that's a subtle thing and that a lot of us won't even notice it. And even if you are feeling, even if you are sort of not represented by that, you might not explicitly notice it. You might say, I don't really feel like I belong there, but you might not even recognize all of the cues that have led you to have that sort of feeling. So I think that in lots of ways, it's, it's, uh, sort of things that can pass by and maybe you you notice it more when you're feeling slighted by it, but that lots of other people could be there in that same situation. And since it's not a thing that's directed toward them and makes them feel a lack of belonging um, or, a, you know, a lack of value or respect might not even notice and might sort of have that pass right by them and not even catch it, especially if no one points it out. Yeah, and I think that the uh, environmental, which I kind of want to talk about a little bit, but I, a little bit more in depth, but the um, kind of part and parcel of that is our media that we consume, correct? And there are a lot of kind of not beyond beyond just representation, there are microaggressions in the media we consume too. And I, one of the things I found fascinating was the effect it had. And I kind of like to get a talk to us about the effect of microaggressions, not only on the person that it's aimed against, but the person who is consuming it, I guess. Right. Um, I'm not sure if this is what you are thinking about, but one of the biggest things that I think about with that is um, who um, is represented in terms of, well, when we think about, uh, criminals. So I think on, I can't remember the statistics on this, but, you know, um, date the like local news, um, local news, like highly over represents, um, perpetrators of crimes that are people of color, but especially black people, black men. Um, and so essentially when we look at, um, you know, what are what is the message that like we might get a picture along with it? Also, probably the picture we see is a mugshot as opposed to like the picture of like the dad with his kids. Um, so it's like, are we getting a sympathetic image or are we getting an image that they, they look like a bad person that we shouldn't like? Um, and that we can see if we sort of go through and um, 
analyze this, there was this really wild example that I show my students sometime from a local newspaper where it was like a story about a man who had had, um, I forget, it was like he had had his car stolen and then there was like something about a criminal and like the big picture and the two stories are right next to each other and the big picture, um, the guy who had had his car stolen, um, I think was was black and his picture was very big and it was very close to the crime story and so it was really even when they were like highlighting that something bad happened to him and this this person was victimized by crime um you could very easily glance at that and come away with the same sort of message that all of this other media has of like who who are like the the sort of criminals and the bad people and how that is um co-varies with race in terms of media and what gets represented. And then on the other side, and I can't remember if we talked about this in the paper, but there's also this um, way under representation when we look at like, so victimization, um, like white women and girls when they are victimized tend to like get a dramatic amount of media attention. So there's this like huge, um, outpouring and like big, yeah, big response from media. And it's a big deal, um, versus when it's, women and girls of color um or like men like black men being victimized then it's like a very like might not get any attention at all and i think we can look at for example like awful sort of statistics with regards to native american women um of like missing and murdered native women that like never make any like never ever get discussed within the mainstream media at all um and and so looking at like who do we who do we even acknowledge their their like victimization and their experiences and like devote media attention, but also other sort of like resources of search and rescue and so on to actually like try and remedy and rectify the victimization? Yeah, and that was a big um, topic here in Cleveland back when Anthony Sowell was apprehended because all of his victims were uh, drug users, prostitutes, people, black women who had fallen through the cracks. And a lot of them had court dates coming up and they just missed the court dates and no one looked for them and no one was out, you know, searching the, and they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Part of that is a function of the criminal justice system in which people just disappear, they move out of states or whatever. And it was, it really brought home kind of the, you know, there was no media coverage of those people, but, you know, um, a white woman goes missing and it's on, you know, 60 Minutes does a, a whole thing on it, right? Right. And I and I think we can also think about that just made me think about another sort of stark example of the, I don't remember his name, but the man who um, did the shootings in Atlanta, the the spa shootings and the, you know, police officers being interviewed afterwards. And they were like, well, he just had a bad day. Um, Whereas like what? And this was, you know, a white man who killed like multiple Asian women. And yeah, like what is the way that we're talking about different people who you know, engage in, you know, have some of the same experiences or engage in some of the same behavior, but how is it characterized? So he's not like a terrible person and he certainly isn't a representative of his race. It's not like, oh, we can't trust white men now because they might be murderers. Of course not. It's just about this guy and this guy isn't even all bad. He just had a bad day. Yeah, and I I want to return to, um, you know, the won't be a representative of the entire culture in a minute, but I wanted to return to kind of this, um, the idea of the environmental 
attacks. And one of the things that I found really interesting in the article was the, um, I mean, we kind of all know the, the monument story now because so mm -hmm. many were torn down, but the Confederate flag, um, there was something in the article that uh, said, uh, corroborated by research showing that support for the Confederate flag is more strongly linked to racial resentment than to local history. And I, I wondered what um, you guys found in regard to the, the flag and some of what that represents, because I think it's a perfect example of a microaggression, right? Um, yeah, well, so with that, they um, were essentially trying to look at, like, is this a place that had a very, so I think they were sort of tying it to, like, the history, like, pre-war and what all was going on there and seeing, like, is this a place where like lots of um, soldiers who fought for the Confederacy were killed and they're really trying to like honor those ancestors? Um, or is it more about this is a place where there's more hostility toward black people? And that when you look at those two things in sort of competing with each other, the stronger tie to support for the Confederate flag isn't this sort of like history and ancestors. It's more about having like negative attitudes and resentment toward black people. Um, and there is tied to racial uh, disparity, correct? So the more representation of Southern heritage, there were more, it was more racially dis disparity, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. There was also a paper that we talked about in there that that um, talked about that and that there was. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'm confusing because there's several papers that have come out on this recently. There was also another paper that I can't remember. It, it was published really recently. It might not have made it into our review, but where they found um, a link between um the number of lynchings that took place in a given location and how many Confederate monuments that they had. And so essentially like showing a link between those two things and that, um, yeah, essentially like places that had more um, racist lynchings had more Confederate monuments. Um, so it was sort of like a symbol of like, beware, like, yeah, so I think we can move probably to um, this idea of the, um, I, I love this term, pathological, maybe you could say it, pathologizing the culture. Pathologizing what? the culture. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what, what more did we say about that? Um, Oh, I think, but yeah, tell me a little bit more about what yeah, you were so talking about. The, the kind of what I wanted to explore was this idea of like, um, you know, also the idea of the elevation of whiteness and the um, kind of denigration of people of color through accents. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, there was also the idea of um, white composers being given primacy, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, and also police department. This is when they were talking about the police department after 9-11. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, that was all about sort of pathologizing, like, cultural aspects, values, things like that. Um, 
And yeah, I feel like there's just like unlimited numbers of examples once you start really thinking about this. But yeah, it's sort of like the ways in which um, and, and thinking about the way these things are able to be said in a way that like people who perceive themselves not to be racist and don't think that they're saying anything prejudiced can repeat it. I mean, I certainly know that like growing up, I heard a lot of these things and I don't think that the people who are saying them thought that they were telling me something racist, but the way in which, oh, well, you know, like she doesn't have good English. I don't think you should be friends with her. Like she doesn't have good English. And it's like, well, what is good English? And how did it become good English? It became good English because it was what the white people were speaking. And that's, you know, how we wrote our grammar books and our dictionaries and our whatever. And then we it becomes a justified way to discriminate against other people who don't speak in that same way. Then we can be like, oh, well, we can't hire them for this job. They don't, you know, speak with proper English. They, you know, you shouldn't be friends with them. You shouldn't admit them into this school. Like it becomes this very justified way to exclude and discriminate and look down upon people, which is really just like, they're just have a different way of doing something that has no value on its surface. Like the only reason it has value to speak in this particular way is because we decided it did. Um, and I think we can think about that in so many ways of like, you were talking about the music of like, if you go to a music conservatory, what type of music is taught? It's like European traditions of music and of dance and of, um, Oh, something I was talking to my class about today of like cuisine. So like if you go to a fine dining restaurant, most fine dining restaurants in the United States are going to probably be, you know, American, like white American slash probably maybe like French or some sort of like European tradition. Um, much less common is like a fine dining Ethiopian restaurant or a Indonesian restaurant or, you know, like basically these other, like the rest of the world cultures and cuisines, those typically are not considered fine dining. And that isn't, um, you know, it's thought about and looked at very, very differently. And why is that? Like why noting that like we associate like high, high status, valuable culture with you know, white European traditions. Right. And if it is elevated, it is done by some sort of celebrity chef. Bobby Flay does Indonesian and does, you know, deep right. it's, the dish and right. Absolutely. Like it's a fusion and it's potentially is appropriation. Yeah. It's like a white person who has chosen to like bring a little bit of it in and like put it on and make it like more like raise the status of it. So it still is has those same problems right i've watched enough food network to understand that so the uh the thing i wanted to kind of kind of bring it to a close is what i think is uh, probably the most um disturbing part of the article which is this denial of individual racism and um one of the things that i i found incredible is the same actor do uh, doctrine which um, you brought up at me. But there's a real sense in which, you know, saying we're not racist is enough to be not racist, but it's not really, is it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of our um, legislation, but also even just like the way that we sort of think about things is we think about um, racism at an individual level, like we have a harder time thinking about it at a systemic level. That's sort of the way that we have framed like the lore about what racism is. Um, but then also, you know, racism is these really blatant things. It's being a, an outspoken, like, you know, member of the KKK or something. It's like, you are very like, it, it's hate, it's violence. It's these really, really extreme things. And therefore all of the stuff that like the majority of the things that uphold the system don't fit into that category. So they can sort of just go along. So, so the same actor doctrine you're bringing up. So that's, you know, where somebody can um, essentially have kind of, I don't know if it's quite called legal immunity. I don't think it technically is immunity, but the idea is that it's a very strong defense that if you hire a person, but then you, um, that person claims that you behave in a discriminatory way toward them in the workplace, that you can be like, no, no, no. I couldn't, you know, be discriminatory toward you because I hired you. So basically it's like a get out of jail free card. You can't really be prosecuted for being discriminatory um, because you did this first thing of hiring the person in the first place. So that sort of like proved that you were not discriminatory. You were not racist by hiring them. And I think if we think about like, the way a lot of hiring sort of situations work where like there's certainly an issue in tons of institutions with retention of people of you know various different marginalized groups but th certainly thinking about people of color and i think that there's lots that can go into that but also it's sort of this notion of like we're not really doing anything to make it uh a safe space and a good environment where you want to stay. And also that we can kind of behave in any way we like, because we ult we did this first thing of showing we're not, you know, we're not racist by hiring you, but not really doing a whole lot to, um, to, you know, keep that up once you're actually there. Right. And I, that's, that leads to a whole, like, you know, how many, um, yeah, that leads to a whole set of other problems that we probably don't have time to talk about. It like, you know, creating a culture within the workforce that is friendly to and supportive of means getting rid of a lot of this color. Well, what is in the paper called false color blindness. Mm -hmm. But I also kind of wanted to just touch on one other thing uh, because I hear a lot um, within our discussions and things about this. Um, why can't we just be based on what you bring to the table and, you know, uh, skill and merit instead of all these other things? Why do we need? And I think it's it's incorporated in this myth of uh, mediocrity, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I think this one's really important. So yeah, the the myth of meritocracy. I think that that is sort of a really like believing in meritocracy is sort of like a key belief in U.S. society of like people like things should be like given to people based on merit. We shouldn't just do handouts. We you know. Um, and I think if we look back over history, that's virtually never happened. Um, things have never actually been uh, given out strictly based on merit. And in fact, there are tons of things. If we look over history, the majority of U.S. 
history, there have been a lot of things that have been given to white people just for being white of like, um, different sort of giving land, giving different sort of things at various parts, westward expansion, different parts of history of where, and trying to get Europeans to come over and just like colonize and take over the land in the early, um, you know, pre-revolutionary period. So, uh, there's been so many things like that. We haven't been doing it based on meritocracy. We've been doing like giving people benefits based on their race, based on their gender. And then sort of at some point within the last, uh, you know, hundred ish years, a little bit less than that, we started going, wait, 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 no, no, no. Like it should be based on merit. Like once we started opening up technically allowing women to be in places, going to universities, be in workplaces, allowing people of color to have citizenship and be in these places. And then now we're kind of going, wait, 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 it needs to be based on merit. And I think that there's, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that, but one thing is that, well, we are, we are not all starting in the same place. So different people have a lot more um, systemic and structural disadvantages that they're working to overcome to get to the same financial place, to get to the same sort of educational place as other people and other demographics. Um, but then also there's the notion as if like there is some totally, truly objective way to assess these things, whereas most of the time, we are making, there's some subjectivity and judgments, and we might be looking at how well someone conforms to some of these things we were talking about of cultural values of like, how well do you sort of speak properly and different things like that, where it, um, you know, it's only merit when you look at it at a really narrow cultural lens of like, you are meriting it within my personal worldview of what I see as valuable. If we broaden that lens, it gets a lot harder to defend that. Thank you for this. And I, I wish um, maybe you could have something that would give us a positive uplift in all of this um, as to what we could do to maybe change our behaviors and be more aware of our own microaggressions to each other, toward each other? Well, I guess what I hope with all of this work is that, you know, if if you do think that this is important information and valuable to learn about, then like there's so many different little pieces to think about. And I think that hopefully that can for me, the more I think about these things, the more I can recognize ways in which they have been operating that I previously had not been noticing or doing anything about. And so it's like empowering me to go, oh, that has happened, you know, in my presence before. And maybe I didn't even notice it and I didn't do anything about it and I didn't point it out and I didn't work against it. And so the more aware we are of these things, like we can sort of reprogram our minds to not just go along with it, but also we can take actions to challenge that system in the way that it's perpetuating things. So I, I like to think of it as like a tool that we can use to empower ourselves to change ourselves, our social environments, but also, you know, broader systems, because we all, you know, make up broader systems, even if it's just the way we vote, but also, you know, many of us do other things that end up having more influence and more power. So take that knowledge to, to make the system not be this way anymore. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Unpacking 1619. For more information on Heights Library 1619 Project Discussion Group, or to check out more interviews with scholars, please visit heightslibrary.org. See you next episode, wherever you listen to podcasts.